So as I have been obviously thinking about the whole topic of expectations, I have been trying to think about a way to explain why it's important that we think rightly and where the influence of wrong expectations come from. So I am going to start with an example here. I really hope it connects in your brain the same way it was connecting in mine. You just never know. So anyways, I'm going to go ahead and, and the point here, so I'm talking about safety. And the point is not the safety. The point is what are the expectations that we have from the world that influence us so that when we don't get that, we respond sinfully. And this is just one example of that, of just numerous examples we could use. So anyways, I'm going to begin with telling you about a documentary that Craig and I recently watched about the Titanic, which, you know, we never get tired of those things. They're interesting. The host of the show explained various circumstances that contributed to the disastrous results. On that fateful night in the wee hours of the morning, April 15th, 1912, approximately 1,500 people died when the ship collided with an iceberg, and we all know the story. Most people who perished that night died from hypothermia as they plunged into the frigid 28-degree North Atlantic Ocean. The host mentioned several safeguards that should have been implemented to prevent the vessel from the great catastrophe. He addressed the fact that the overall structure of the liner was weaker than it should have been since many of the rivets were made from iron rather than steel, making it 30% weaker and possibly contributed to the ship's inability to withstand the force of the impact. He also described the lack of, necess of necessary lifeboats available. Of the more than 2,000 passengers on board the ocean liner, there were approximately only half as many lifeboats as were needed, and many of the lifeboats were not filled to capacity when they were used. In addition to these factors, at least two of the five telegraph messages warning the ship of icebergs in the area never actually made it to the captain. This was due in part to an underdeveloped telegraph system, which resulted in a in a chaotic cacophony of messages all being sent at the same time. But I found myself most interested in a particular aspect of the maritime disaster that involved an area of the ocean called Iceberg Alley. Have you ever heard of that? So we know of Tornado Alley. This is Iceberg Alley. Off of the glaciers of the Greenland coast, massive chunks of ice crash into the sea forming gigantic icebergs. These are carried by the ocean current past the coast, so Newfoundland would be right here, past the coast of Newfoundland, Canada, and into the shipping lanes between England and the U.S. Ships sailing through the iceberg alley face the danger of colliding with any number of floating mountains of ice. On the night of April 14th, several warnings had been sent informing ships of a larger-than-usual number of glacier glacial masses traveling down Iceberg Alley. Unbeknownst to the captain, one particular iceberg lay directly in the Titanic's path. This, we know, of course, led to the catastrophic accident. So this is all very interesting, but I still haven't gotten to my point yet. So immediately following the devastating maritime disaster, many regulations were put into place to prevent further disasters 
from following because obviously 1,500 people, that is a lot of people that perished in that accident. So here are some of the things that they put into place, some of the regulations that they put into place. Ships are now required to provide enough lifeboats for all their passengers. Good idea. Radio waves were more firmly regulated and ships now have 24-hour radio watches, which they didn't at the time, and the ship that was only two hours away and could have made it in time had turned their radio off for the night. But then the interesting one that kind of goes along with this whole iceberg alley is the International Ice Patrol was formed. So what is that? In 1912, ships reported sightings of icebergs. So ships in the area would see the icebergs and then they would report kind of what they saw. But this was, as you can imagine, only marginally effective. After World War II, airplanes began to patrol Iceberg Alley and reported sightings of glacial masses. Today, over 100 years later, these waters are still patrolled by planes using sophisticated technology to count measure and report sightings of icebergs. So all these regulations and procedures have created a much safer environment for ocean liners and have likely saved countless lives as a result. After watching the documentary, I began to ponder the many safety regulations required in numerous areas of everyday life. So think about what some of those might be. Airbags, car seats, bicycle helmets, Things like fire alarms, oh, and this, spindle spacing on your deck rails. There's all kinds of things. And warnings to prevent children from swallowing button batteries. Safety is governmentally regulated in all kinds of places in our society. These requirements have likely saved thousands of lives over the years, but I wonder if they have also influenced our expectations regarding safety. You've probably heard variations of the slogan, safety first. And if you just do a little Google search to like all these different plaques and things immediately come up. We live in a society where safety rules. But I wonder if in our effort to emphasize safety, we have formed an expectation that we should be safe, that we deserve to be safe. And let's then take it one step further. I wonder if we have transferred our expectations of deserved safety to God, meaning that we expect God to keep us safe. Have we determined that safety is always in our best interest and thus God should accommodate our need, in quotes there, our need for safety? So this example reveals how we might mistakenly transfer cultural experiences and influences to our spiritual expectations. How many of you have thought about that before? I hadn't until I was putting this together. But you think about all the ways that we are constantly told to be safe and we have to do this to be safe and we have to do that to be safe. And then you think about raising children. Many of you are in the process of raising children. What are you trying to do with your children? Well, obviously, if, you know, you're going to try and keep your kids safe. You don't want them getting hurt, obviously. <laughs> but it can easily become an idol if we aren't careful. Without realizing it, we can transfer our cultural expectation of safety to what we expect from God. 
So here are a couple of ways we might transfer our cultural expectations to God and then determine how we should work on, how he should work on our behalf. So I have five things, and this isn't on your outline, but uh, I'll just go ahead and say them. Just, this is just to kind of get in your mind in the same vein here. So number one, in our effort to be safe and keep our loved ones safe, we might fail to trust God and instead try to control our circumstances to achieve safety. Number two, we might elevate our desire for safety over our desire to please God and live according to his will. Number three, we might expect or even demand God to answer our prayers for safety. Number four, we might become angry or disillusioned with God if he doesn't keep our loved ones or ourselves safe. And number five, safety might become an idol in which we are willing to sin to achieve it, or we are willing to sin if we don't get it. So this is just one aspect of our culture. One, think about all the other ways that we are influenced in our culture to think a certain way. And we have to evaluate, is that a biblical way to think? Because even in this one little place of safety, you, I mean, I just only lifted five, listed five areas of potential areas for sin. I mean, I'm sure if we all sat in a circle, we'd come up with a whole lot more than that. This is one. Are we thinking biblically? We constantly need to be evaluating that. But particularly tonight, as we're going to be talking about this, we need to evaluate how we are thinking about God and what our expectations are for the way that God should be working in our lives. Do we have the right expectations of who God is, of what his purpose is, of what he's doing in our lives? And if you looked on your little outline there, you'll see that in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at what our expectations are of ourselves. And like part of that kept dovetailing with this a whole bunch. So we will talk about that a little bit later. But tonight I really was trying to only think through what are our thoughts about who God is and are we thinking rightly about that? So this expectation of safety is only one example, like I said, of how we might place unbiblical expectations on God. If our expectations of God are unbiblical, we will respond sinfully. This is, this is the problem. And as we are responding sinfully, we are not in that moment giving glory to God. And that is the whole purpose we were created was so that we would glorify God. And so if we're thinking wrongly, if our expectations are wrong, we are going to then respond out of those wrong expectations into sin. And thus God does not receive glory from us in that moment. And that's why this is so critical. Laying aside the idea of safety to consider in general, um, aside the idea of safety, consider in general the way the, of this following questions. That's a really badly worded question there or suggestion, whatever it was I was trying to do. Anyways, the point is on your outline, I have a list of questions and I'm just going to go ahead and read these. And I actually decided kind of last minute to throw them onto your outline in case you want to go back later and review them. Just to think through, like, what, and you could probably add a lot more. This was just my 
sampling of them, but to think through what are some of your expectations of God. So um, they aren't numbered, so I'll just go through them. Do you expect God to demonstrate his love for you by making your life easier, comfortable? And I would say that probably all of us, if you asked, well, maybe not all of us, but most of us, if you asked us this question directly, we'd be like, well, no, I don't expect that. But it's how we live that reveals what we expect. We know the truth. We've been in church long enough. We, we know the right answers. But the way we live, the things that instant anger, you know, that's when we begin to realize, whoa, I have expectations I didn't realize I had. So next, do you expect God to change your circumstances? Because think about it, if you expect God to change your circumstances and he doesn't, or you think God owes you to change your circumstances and he doesn't, then what is, how are you going to respond to God? You may be angry, disillusioned, all kinds of other things like I mentioned earlier. Do you expect God to change or remove the difficult person in your life? You may have a difficult person in your life, and that difficult person might be in your life for the rest of your life if God deems that best for you. So are you willing to live in a manner that brings God glory in light of that difficult relationship? Do you expect God to do your will? Do you expect things in your life to go well for you if you obey his word? Ooh, okay, so... This is another thing, very subtle, Hill, right? If I do what Scripture says, if I'm kind, if I'm gracious, if I do the things Scripture is telling me, if I walk with God as I ought to, then the natural result should be that things should go well for me. So how many people, if you look through Scripture and see the faithfulness of their lives, that they actually had everything in their life go well for them? No, why do we think these things? Because we're influenced by the world's way of thinking, not by Scripture. Do you expect God to answer your prayers according to your desires? Do you expect God to overlook or turn a blind eye to your sin? And that's like, I think, little sins. You know the book Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges? Those are the ones that we kind of think like, oh, I, I just, I'm just an anxious person. Darling, you're a sinner and you're sinning when you're fearful, okay? We need to identify it as what it really is. Do you doubt God's goodness when he doesn't meet your expectations? Do you respond sinfully when you don't get your own way? Do you expect God to make you holy and wise apart from time and effort spent in the word and prayer? This is, this is really critical one too. I go to church, I go to Bible study, I check off my Bible reading in the morning. I should be holy and wise. Well, it doesn't work quite like that. We become holy and wise by working it out daily, moment by moment, evaluating our hearts, our desires according to the word of God. We have to be in the word thinking about it, pondering it, meditating on it, tons and tons and tons of work. 
And we are deceived to think that we will be holy apart from all the work that needs to be applied. Do you expect God to keep you, your life, free from difficulties and trials? Do you expect God to give you full understanding of why you are facing a certain trial? A lot of times, see, we try and explain it because if we can explain why we're in the situation that we're in, then we feel like we can make sense out of it. But a lot of times God does not give us the answers to why we're in a difficult situation. And it is not for us to try and figure out God. We know God according to what he has laid out in his word. And we don't have to know all the behind the scenes of what God is doing if he has not revealed that to us. It is our responsibility to walk by faith, to trust God, to lean not on our own understanding. It is important for us to evaluate our expectations of God because if our expectations are wrong, like I already said, it will result in sin. Remember last week, we talked about right and wrong expectations. So right expectations are guided by the truth of Scripture, while wrong expectations are guided by our sinful pride. And then, of course, they, that is influenced by what we see in our culture and our sinful world. So in Obadiah 1.3, it says this, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. So why is it that we struggle sometimes to see some of these things? Because the pride that is in our hearts deceives us. And we already know, according to Hebrews, that sin is deceptive. Sin deceives us. Our hearts, apart from God, are deceptive as well. Pride deceives us. And when we are deceived in our pride, we, are not, we not only expect the world to revolve around us, we also expect God to revolve around us. Now, we would never say that. Oh, none of us good little godly Christian girls would ever say that we expect God to revolve around us, but we can live that way. We would never, as I said, we would never say that. In fact, we likely don't even realize that this is the case. When we evaluate our expectations about God, we quickly realize that we are deceived in our pride and expect God to revolve around us, to do our will, to give us what we want, to make our life easier, to remove the trials. It is only from the position of humility that we can surrender our sinful, arrogant expectations to God. It is only from the position of humility that we will seek to love and serve God rather than expecting him to serve us. That's why humility is so important when it comes to this whole idea of expectations. So humility comes as we know God, and the only way we can know him is through his word. And J.I. Packer wrote this in his book, Knowing God. If you haven't read that, I would highly recommend it. Fabulous book. So he writes this. He says, The Christian's instincts of trust and worship are stimulated very powerfully by knowledge of the greatness of God. But this is knowledge which Christians today largely lack. And that is one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby. We are modern people, and modern people 
though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have as a rule small thoughts of God. Sadly, our view of God is way too small. We have created a God of our own making and thus our expectations of him are based on the God that we have created in our own minds. The God we have invented is not God at all. It is an idol created in our own mind to fulfill our own desires. And this is not where our hearts are. This is not what we desire. But that's why we have to be evaluating our hearts so that we identify, is there any place where I have made a God of my own making rather than worshiping God as he truly is according to his word? Packer again said this, all man-made images of God, whether molten or metal, are really borrowings from the stock and trade of a sinful and ungodly world and are bound, therefore, to be out of accord with God's own holy word. To make an image of God is to take one's thoughts of him from a human source rather than from God himself. And if we are going to know who God is, of course we know we're going to have to do it through the word. So for just a few minutes, I want to look at who God is according to his word. I want for us to be reminded of things we most likely already know, but we can tend to forget. So how desperately we need to feast our eyes and our hearts on the God of Scripture. Only as we grow in our understanding of God's character through his word will we see who he truly is. Will we see his majesty, his magnificence? You might ask, so what is the benefit of directing our gaze on the character of God? Why is it such a big deal? Why does it really matter that much? Because the more we see the glory and splendor of God, the more we realize how insignificant we truly are the more we grow in understanding the holy, wonderful majesty of God, the more we are humbled. The more we contemplate the glorious magnificence of our great God, the more we will desire to humbly lay our lives down as a living sacrifice for the proclamation and the display of His glory. The more clearly we view the grandeur of God, the less we will value ourselves our desires, and our own personal glory. Living for the glory of God should be our first priority, and His glory should direct all of our expectations. Did you catch that? His glory should direct all of our expectations. Wow, that's a really tall order, don't you think? (laughs) Think about all the work that has to go into that in order for us to think rightly. When our expectations are directed by who God really is, as he is described in scripture, we will be less inclined to respond sinfully to the people and circumstances around us. Since God is our creator, he has determined how we should live. So what I want to do is briefly consider who God is as the creator and what that means to us as his creation. And so... Um, I've got a whole list. I think there's like 16 things, and I even still had to be cutting stuff out. So this is just a very brief list. Well, it feels kind of long because there's 16. 
and we're just going to race through them. I'm not going to talk a lot about them. But what I wanted to do as we think about God as the creator, and why am I choosing God as the creator? Because if God created everything, guess what that means? It all belongs to him. It also means that he knows how it's all supposed to work. It also means that he knows the best way for us to live. He knows what is absolutely best for us because he is the one that has created us. So I felt like looking at God as the creator was, at least for what I'm trying to talk about tonight, Lord willing, helpful. And so I'm just going to go through all these different points and read the verses quickly because I just want you to hear one thing after another and really try and listen. I know it's late. I feel it too. So I'm standing up here talking. We're all tired. It's been a long day. But just try and engage your mind in these passages of who God truly is. So number one, he is the only God. Isaiah 43.10, before me, before me was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Oh, do you guys have two ones on your page? Okay, well, second number one. <laughs> Sorry about that. He rules over all. Psalm 103.19, his sovereignty rules over all. Number two, God spoke the creation into existence. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. God just spoke. I love this verse. And it says, and by the breath of his mouth, all the hosts, all the stars God created. Number three, God created humanity. Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Number four, God created me, personally me. It's very, it, this is very personal. It's not like just, oh, God randomly made the, the universe. God randomly made the earth. Of course, we know none of it was random anyways. But it's not just like, oh, God made people. God made me. So Psalm 139, 13 and 14, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb and I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. This is really important that we grasp this and here's why. Because when you wrestle through the difficulties of life, sometimes we can begin to feel in our sinfulness, in our wrong expectations, as though God doesn't care, as though God doesn't love me. And that's an entirely selfish, sinful way to think, but most likely all of us have been there at some point or another. And to come back to this and to remember, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb carefully, whoever you are, your person, what you look like, your personality, what your gifts and talents and all that is, God put you together just how he wanted. Don't ever forget that. He did it specially with a, with a special intent in mind that you individually would bring glory to God in the way that he has created you. And as girls, we know what do we do, right? We compare ourselves to everybody else. Well, if I could just be like her, if I could just be like her. No, 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 no. 
God made you exactly the way he wanted you to be for his glory. Number five, God holds the earth in place. Psalm 104, we're going to do kind of a lot of verses here in Psalm 104 as it talks about creation. Verse 5, he established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. God is the one that keeps our world all in proper orbit so that it doesn't change just a little bit too much and the degrees are off and we freeze to death or we burn to death. Number 6, he holds the water back from flooding the earth. Psalm 104, 6 uh, sort of six through nine, kind of just picked out various parts of that. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your, rebu- at your rebuke, they fled. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so they will not return to cover the earth. Think about the power of God here as well. Number seven, God provides water to the wild animals. Psalm 104.10 He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. You wonder how the wild animals stay alive? It's because God deems it that way. God feeds them. God waters them. Number eight, God causes food to grow. Psalm 104, 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth. If God did not allow it, there would be no food. God is the one that gives us food. Number nine, God owns his creation. Psalm 104, 24. O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Everything in this earth belongs to God. He is the owner of it all. Number 10, God created and named the stars. Isaiah 40, verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Billions and billions of stars, he calls them by name. This is a magnificent God, and yet he created you as well. Number 11, God is instructed by no one, Romans eleven thirty four, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Number 12, God is indebted to no one, Romans eleven thirty five, who has first given to him that it might be paid back again to him? Nobody first gave anything to God. He is self-sustaining all in himself. Number 13, all things exist from him, through him, and to him. Verse 36 of Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And then, of course, you remember the last phrase of it, right? To him be the glory forever. Amen. Just don't you love reading Paul because he just bursts out like this at various times. And this is one of those times where he just bursts out to him be the glory. He can't contain himself, but that we would also be the same way. Number 14, God needs nothing. Acts 17, 25. 
He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Number 15, God sustains our existence. Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and move and exist. And number 16, we exist for him. That is our entire purpose is we exist for him. So 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. So as we consider God as the creator, I hope that that just in a very small way gives you a little bit of insight into who this magnificent God is. So then as we keep moving to be on your outline, as the creator, God acts according to his own will. So if God is the creator, if he has made everything, if he has made it all for him and through him and to him, if he has created us uh, for bringing him glory, then he should be able to determine what he does with his creation, right? So, number one, God does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And then number two, God causes peace as well as difficulty. So I think this is Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 4, yeah, it is Isaiah 45, 6. I am the Lord and there is no other causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these. See, we want a nice and tidy little God that does only nice things and fixes our problems and makes everything nice and tidy and comfortable and happy and sweet. We don't want a God that, what does it say? Creates calamity, difficulty, adversity is what that word means. We don't feel comfortable knowing that God is the one that creates difficulty in our lives. But we need to understand that he does that because he has a greater purpose. We'll look at that in a minute. So number three, God orchestrates prosperity as well as adversity. Ecclesiastes 3, or sorry, 7, 13, and 14. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. God has created the good as well as the difficulty, the trials that we face. Now, God does not create evil, right? So we don't want to get confused here. But God does bring trials into our lives so that we, and Chris explained it so beautifully on Sunday, right? The, the whole idea of trials and temptations and the quote from John MacArthur. So the whole idea is that God uses the difficult things in our lives as trials that will grow us so that we become more and more spiritually mature. And as we grow, as we surrender our will to the Lord in those trials, responding in righteousness, God is glorified. 
But, same word for trials and temptations, but when we respond in sinfulness, those trials then become temptations that lead us into sin. So, number four, his ways and thoughts are above all. So Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So in this area, we tend to struggle, do we not? We forget that God's ways are different from our ways. And we talk about it. We know that verse, right? We know that verse in Isaiah. Yeah, God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And, you know, we have all the little Christian cliche versey things that we say to each other. But when push comes to shove and life is difficult and we get what we didn't want, what we didn't expect, then we have to really evaluate God's ways are not my ways, and he is still good, and he is still loving, even when things don't go the way that I wish that they would go. We lose sight of the fact that he brings calamity and adversity for our good. When we lose sight of this, we fail to walk by faith, trusting him when life looks different than we expected. When we fail to get what we expected, we find ourselves then sinning against God. So for those of you that come on Friday mornings, I know there's only a few of you here, but you're going to get a little bit of repeat here because some of the things that we've been studying on Friday mornings are um, very similar with what we're talking about tonight. And I could not help myself. I tried to think of other ways to get around this, and I just couldn't. So I have to use these two passages um, the one from Job that Rachel taught last, or like a week and a half ago, and then the one um, from John that I taught this past Friday. But they are so powerful as we consider the character of God and what he is doing in our lives in bringing adversity. This is really important so that we have the right expectations of God. So you're probably familiar with the account in the Gospel of John where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? We probably, most of us know about that. What you might not be so familiar with are a couple of statements Jesus made that may possibly be a bit shocking to you. So the account, uh, this is from John 11, the account begins with Jesus and his disciples who are ministering about one day's journey from Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And Jesus receives word from Mary and Martha that Lazarus is sick and he sends this message back to them. So they, they send a message and they say, the one whom you love is sick. So then Jesus responds, and this is what he says. He says, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So this is the message that the messenger then takes back to Mary and Martha. Of course, by the time they get this message, Lazarus has already died. So I'm sure they were rather confused about that. We might expect that Jesus would depart immediately upon hearing this news, right? He hears that Lazarus is sick. He loves Lazarus, not just as some random person. Jesus had a personal relationship with Lazarus. He loved him as a friend. So you would think he's probably going to like jet over to uh, Bethany, right? And, and heal him. Or at the very least he may decide that he could just heal him from a distance. I mean, for goodness sakes, he did it other times, right? But instead, Jesus stays where he is and continues what he has been doing 
for two more days. He doesn't leave. And this is what verse 5 says. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So did you catch what I just said there? So it says he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there longer. Why did he stay longer? Because he loved them. This is very perplexing. Why did Jesus stay two days longer? Well, clearly because he loved the family. That's what the passage says. This makes little sense to us, but Jesus had a different plan than Mary and Martha. Remember, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He had a plan to glorify himself and to grow the faith of those who would be present when he raised Lazarus from the dead. So after the two days, when Jesus is preparing to go to Bethany with the fam where the family resided, he then makes this statement to his disciples. And he says, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go to him. I'm glad I wasn't there. Lazarus is dead and I'm glad I wasn't there. That sounds very cold and heartless. Is our God cold and heartless? No, but the problem is we interpret life from our perspective. We can interpret this situation from our perspective. The perspective of Lazarus needed to be healed and Jesus chose not to do it. And then he said he's glad of all the things. See, we're not looking and, and placing our expectations in the proper place. Because instead of looking at it and going, okay, I can trust my God because he has a better plan than what I could imagine. We instead judge God based on what we can see and what we expect that he should do based on what? On what the world tells us, on what our own sinful pride desires. But that's why the story is so amazing. When we think of this account, we usually only focus on Lazarus's resurrection. You know, when you think about it in Sunday school and that kind of thing, when you're a kid, oh, God raised Jesus, raised Lazarus from the dead. And that's an amazing miracle, an amazing, miraculous story. Jesus, however, let Lazarus die. He let Mary and Martha grieve. He let Lazarus begin to decay in the tomb. He let the mourners spend four days grieving with Mary and Martha. Jesus intentionally allowed sorrow and pain because his plan was greater than anything the disciples or Mary and Martha could have ever imagined. Jesus intended to display his glory and grow the faith of the disciples and Mary and Martha. It even became an opportunity for evangelism because at the very end of the passage, it says this, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary, so many of the people that were mourning with Mary and Martha, saw what Jesus had done and they believed in him. So we look at that on the, on the front end and we go, what in the world? Why would Jesus be glad for, for all of the tragedy that they experienced, for the heartache, for the sadness? Why would he be glad? Why would he stay there? Because 
he had another plan that was far greater than just only healing Lazarus. And if you want to know more about that, you can go listen to Friday morning. I just had so much fun studying this passage. But, but I did want to share that with you tonight because I think it's such a great example of God as the creator. He determines what is best. We do not determine that, but we think a lot of times in the ways that we respond to the difficulties, to the things in life that are hard. We think that we understand rightly and we don't. And so we need to constantly be evaluating, am I viewing this from a biblical perspective? So C, God's will is always to receive glory. When God does what he pleases, remember that the a verse from Psalm 115, God does what he pleases. It isn't because he is egotistical or arrogant. He orchestrates everything in creation for his own glory because he is perfect and good and holy. His glory will only ever be the very essence of goodness and holiness, of truth and righteousness. Because God is the creator, he determines what is best for the creation, and that is us. And it is his glory that is absolutely and entirely best for all his creation. Have you ever thought about that before? God's glory, God receiving glory, is what is best for you. You giving God glory in whatever circumstance you are going through, you are in, difficult or otherwise, that is best for you when you respond in a manner that gives God glory. So bringing God glory should be our greatest desire and pursuit as a result, should it not? And yet we wrestle with that because our own, we're puffed up in our own mind. We have such a big view of ourselves and such a small view of God that when we deal with Uh, situations that come into our lives, our expectations are driven by our own worldview, by me sitting on the throne, by me being the center of my universe, rather than God is the center of the universe and it is my sole purpose to worship and honor and glorify him. So number one, glory to God alone, not to us. So just thinking through this idea of God's glory. So Psalm 115, 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Number two, give glory to God. This is what we should be doing all the time is giving glory to God. This is our purpose. Psalm 29, 2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And then number three, proclaim God's glory. And this is a little bit longer. It's from Psalm 96. And I'm going to read uh, verses three through nine. But just listen as he describes uh, God's glory and giving him glory. So it says this starting in verse three. Tell of his glory among the nations his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord. That means give to the Lord. O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. What a powerful passage. Do you get the feeling of what we're supposed to be doing? Give glory, give glory to God. That is our rightful response to who he is, to what he's done as our creator. And I don't even have time tonight to get into the gospel. I'm not even going there. But add that on top of all of this, that he would save us by sending his son to redeem us from his wrath. Give glory to God. Number four, glorify God through worship. Psalm 95, 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then this is another quote by, oh no, this is by Tozer this time. So Tozer says this, many of us are strictly Santa Claus Christians. We think of God as putting up the Christmas tree and putting our gifts underneath. That is only an elementary kind of love. We need to go on. We need to know the blessing of worshiping in the presence of God without thought of wanting to rush out again. Did you catch that? Let me read it again. He says, We need to know the blessing of worshiping in the presence of God without thought of wanting to rush out again. I was really convicted about that. Because it's so easy to have our to-do list, all the things we need to do. We spend our time with the Lord and we rush off. But instead, to stay, to focus. And I realize we have responsibilities, we have children, we have all kinds of things. But what is our heart attitude? What is our motive? What is our desire? I always interrupt these quotes. Okay, so last line of this quote here. We need to be delighted in the presence of utter, infinite excellence. So our greatest expectation in every circumstance in life should be to glorify God. The question that should always be in our hearts and on the tip of our tongue is, how can I glorify God in this situation? That is the expectation that I need to bring to everything in my life. You stub your toe, how can I glorify God? Your toddler won't eat, how can I glorify God? Your husband's had a bad day at work, how can I glorify God? Your boss yells at you at work, how can I glorify God? Do you get the idea there? Like constantly, everything in our lives, how can I glorify God? So D, what is our right response to God? If we are seeking to glorify God, our right response should be humble surrender to every circumstance, good or bad. We shouldn't fight, argue, become angry, or respond in any other number of sinful responses. So number one, do not arrogantly question God. That statement might go against your expectations. What? I can't question God? If things don't go the way we want in life, 
we need to not be questioning God with an arrogant, angry, demanding heart. If we are mistreated, hurt, ignored, sidelined, betrayed, harmed, it is wrong for us to sinfully question God or accuse Him. Why? Why would that be wrong? It's, it's one thing to wrestle through the difficulties that God brings. God understands we wrestle at times. This is that arrogant attitude that needs an answer. Why are you doing this? Why have you done this? It's that kind of like using a worldly term, entitlement attitude maybe a little bit. But then Isaiah says this, Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth, earth, will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? God is the creator and he has the right to do as he pleases. It is our responsibility to humbly try to align our hearts with what God is doing in our lives, not to argue with him and question God accusatorily. We may need to wrestle in difficult circumstances. I already said that. We may need to pour out our pain and grief and heartache to God as we try to grasp what his purpose is in that difficult thing. But there is a difference in that compared to arrogantly questioning questioning God and questioning his purposes. So I want to give you an example from Job now because, again, such just really practical uh, example. You remember the account of Job. Job loses everything in a matter of seconds, literally seconds. Messenger comes. Well, one messenger is there. The next one arrives. The next one arrives. The next one arrives. So one, they come right, one right after the other to inform Job that his children are dead and basically that everything he owns is destroyed or stolen. He's lost everything in a matter of just a few seconds. So I want you to think about Job's response here. <clears throat> so Job's initial response, that small a on your outline. Job 1, 20 and 21 says this. So this is how Job initially responds to all of that. I mean, can you even fathom all losing everything so quickly? And the only thing he didn't lose was his wife. And remember, she said to curse God. So she wasn't, in that moment at least, being very helpful. So it says this, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground. And what did he do? Worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So then, as time passes, and Job continues to deal with the reality of this, and remember what also happened is he ended up being horribly, horribly sick with a terrible condition of boils all over his body. So things got even worse. And so as time was passing, he was wrestling. And in his wrestle, he becomes a little bit misguided. And so I want to just read a couple of those verses to you. So B, Job responds to God improperly. Job 13, 3, he says, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God, he says. He's trying to 
process through this. And now he says, I would like to argue with God regarding what he's done. And I don't think Job had a, a hugely rebellious attitude toward God, but he's wrestling through this very, very difficult trial. And he's kind of gotten to the end of himself and wrestling to understand to respond rightly. And he says, I desire to argue with God. But then he says it again. So in Job 13, 15, he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. So then our account continues to pass on through the book. And we get, so that was chapter 13. Now we get to chapter 33. And this is, remember, he's had the three old friends and they all talk and they have bad advice. And then the younger friend comes and he has the best of the advice. And this is what he says to Job. This is Elihu confronts Job, see on your outline. So Job 33, 13 says, Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all of his doings? So Elihu is wondering, like, this is not right. Why are you questioning God? And so then we skip forward to Job 38. And D, on your outline, God questions Job. And this, of course, so I've taken like chapters down to a few verses here to pick out some main ones to help you see. Because again, I want you to see the character of God. I want you to imagine how dare we question God. We have wrong expectations. How dare we have wrong expectations of God? We need to know him from his word. So listen to what God says. Uh, Job 38, verse 2, and then I kind of just, there's a lot of different verses here. So, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Can you bind the chains of Pallades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of heaven or fix their rule over the earth? Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or who or given understanding to the mind? So God is asking Job all these questions. And what does Job has to say? No, no, I can't do any of it. And that was the whole point as God was asking him this, giving Job the right perspective of who he truly is. And then this is Job's response, E. Job repents. So Job 40, verses 3 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice and I will add nothing more. And then later we get to chapter 42 and Job responds again. And uh, starting in verse 1, 1 through 6, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Can we relate to Job? 
when we have wrong expectations and we respond sinfully to God, we can say the same thing. And we can say, I have declared that which I did not understand. I didn't know. I didn't get it. Things were too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract. And then you know what he said? I repent in dust and ashes. Why? Because he was questioning God, wanting to argue with God. This is not our place. We are the creation. It is our sole purpose to give God glory in whatever way God determines in our lives that we should give him glory. And that's going to look entirely different for each one of us. So then E, how is God glorified through his children? Number one, as we bear much fruit. And this is just kind of a summary here of the whole thing. So John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As we surrender our lives before the Lord in giving Him glory, then guess what? Our lives bear much fruit, and then it is evident that we belong to Christ, that we are His children. He brings trials and difficulties into our lives to provide opportunities for us to deny ourselves and obey his word. If our expectations of God are misguided, incorrect, worldly, unbiblical, we will not bear much fruit because we will be more focused on ourselves, on how we are mistreated, on how difficult our trial is, rather than on God and how we can respond in a manner that will bring him glory. And keep this in mind, girls. We are not alone in our struggle because it is God that provides all the strength necessary to be able to respond in a manner that brings him glory. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.